Um, we're in Acts chapter two, uh, chapter four, excuse me, and um, we're looking at the second half of chapter four. So if you have a Bible, please open it up. Acts chapter four. I'm just going to read twenty-three through thirty-one. We'll finish the rest of the chapter though uh, by the end of today. You know when we're done. So we're in Acts chapter four, verse twenty-three. Acts chapter four, verse twenty-three. When they were released. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon your threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders and are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So kids, you can go. We're in Acts chapter 4 together. Our sermon series, if you're new here, we like to go through books of the Bible uh, we're in the book of Acts. We will go through the uh, whole book. Uh, we'll take a break in the summer and possibly around Easter, and then we will uh, go back in and finish it. So we're in Acts chapter 4, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we've entitled Spirit-Empowered Mission. Spirit-Empowered Mission. This week, as I said, we'll look at chapter 4 at the second part of it, and if you've been following along with us in our study, we know that Dr. Luke, a medical doctor, the author of the Gospel of Luke, uh, also wrote the book of Acts. As a sequel, volume two of one book, Luke Acts, one book, two parts. In the first book, in the gospel, he declared all that Jesus did, all that Jesus said and taught, and Acts is a continuation of all that Jesus is still doing. And if you say, well, you know, how is that possible? We saw him be crucified. We saw him be buried. They put a a seal around his tomb. Luke would say, that is true. Acts 1.3 says that he also presented himself, Jesus, alive to his followers after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of, of God. He would say, we saw him, we talked with him, we fellowshiped with him, we ate with him. And 10 days later, Jesus ascends. Jesus then ascended 40 days, I'm sorry. And then 10 days later, uh, he sends the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son sends the Spirit. Third person of the Trinity, right? Co-equal, co-eternal, to empower us, to empower his people to live on mission, to continue the work of Jesus. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us. It shouldn't be a surprise to his followers. They heard Jesus say in the gospel according to John that the Spirit will come. I won't leave you as often. I will send him, and he will bear witness of me. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will tell you about Jesus. That's what he said. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what I have said, he has take what, I, what is mine, and he will declare it to you. He will show it to you. 
And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. Jesus baptizes the believers uh, with the Holy Spirit, and immediately they begin to declare the good news in the person and the work of Jesus. 3,000 people come to faith. Chapter 3, the, the, the disciples are, uh, uh, by the end of chapter 2, the disciples are empowered and, and they're worshiping together. They're, they're, they're singing together. They're, they're fellowshipping together. They're praying together. All the while, they're declaring the good news of Jesus. Church is good. Life is good. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is like Genesis 1 and 2. All is going well. Chapter 4, though, is a different story. Chapter 4, we start seeing persecution. The church starts facing persecution. You know, Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Not maybe, not possible, you will. But he said, be of good uh, cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Ladies and gentlemen, we follow the Christ who was murdered, (laughs) who who was crucified for all that he said he was, the God-man before Abraham, I was. I forgive sins, and they killed him for it. So as we follow him, we should not be surprised. They were not surprised, I don't think, that when we pick up where Jesus left off or we pick up continuing his message, continuing to do his work, that we're faced with persecution, with hatred. In Acts 14, Paul gets stoned, literally beaten up and dragged out of the city, all busted up with rocks. He wipes himself off. He goes back into the city of Lystra, I think it is, Lystra, and, and this is what he says. This is what the Bible says, that he went back to strengthen the souls of the disciples. That kills me. Like they beat him up and dragged him and busted him with rocks, and he's going, dust himself off, and walks back in, not to get like stitches, which I would think it would say, um, but to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying... Paul talking here that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So it's no surprise. That's a good word. Because I think in Acts chapter 4, we pick up our text in verse 23. It says that they were released, Peter and John, and they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And I think they're going back, they're declaring, and and they're worshiping, and we'll see today they're praying, and, and they're encouraging. They're encouraging the disciples After being rebuked and threatened, they're encouraging them to stay strong in the faith. Remember, they were in the temple. They were praying, and and they healed a man. The guy said, you know, give me me silver. Give me some gold. I'm lame since since, uh, uh, my birth. And he says, no, I don't have have money for you, but in the name of Jesus, arise. And the man gets healed, and and, and he's declaring, and he's worshiping, and he's praising God. And and Peter begins to preach the gospel and say, it's not us, it's Jesus and the people in the temple got very angry, very angry. And, and the whole Sanhedrin, the, the power brokers of Israel, surround them, throw them in jail. They take them out of jail the next day. And, and, they, and they say, where would you get this power? Whose name are you using? Again, Peter and John take the opportunity, filled with the Spirit, and they preach Christ again. Verse 10 of chapter 4, let it be known to all of you. The, the leaders, the, the police, the, the, you know, it's like the governor, the president, everyone is against Jesus. He says, let it be known to you, all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified only six weeks earlier, but God raised him from the dead by this man, by this man, Jesus, this man before you as well. Peter says, and you're not only the stone that you, that you 
Jesus is not only stone that you rejected. Verse 12 says there's no salvation. Listen, Jewish leaders. Listen, the, the Sanhedrin. Listen, those who, who pride themselves in keeping the law, who know their Bibles really well. Better than probably anyone here, including me. Listen, all of you, there's no salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It enraged them. They were annoyed. The Bible says that they were fear of the people. They warned them, threatened them, and released them and said, don't speak about this Jesus again. That was kind of light. We'll see later on that things get really, really bad. So what I want to point out as we jump into this context is the, is the hardship, that their hardship, their persecution, that threatening manner, that, that tone, that don't do this, not only did not deter them, it fueled them to, to be even more bold, even more courageous as they live on mission with Jesus. How did that happen? Why did it happen? Well, we'll turn to our text this morning and we'll, we'll see why. The three movements I want to see. One is, is the supplication. We're going to spend time looking at the prayer. The supplication of the disciples. We'll spend most of our time there because other themes we'll be picking up as we go along Acts. So we'll spend most of the time looking at the supplication of the disciples. Next, the demonstration of God. God shows up. These men pray. God shows up in a, in a powerful way. And then we'll spend just a couple of moments looking at the cooperation of everyone and then we'll pick up more of that next week as we study together. So, I could see my um, my PowerPoint. I, I didn't do it uh, smoothly, but okay. Number one, let's look at the supplication together. Okay, verse twenty-three. Look what he says. When they were released, we already know they were in jail. They were they were they were threatened, and now they're released. They go back to their friends. Talk, the friends mean the, the, the same ones that, that brothers and sisters in Christ. They they told them everything that the priests and the elders had to say. And look at verse twenty-four. And when they heard it, when, the, when their friends, when the, when the Christians heard this, they lifted up their voices together and probably someone was designated to pray and said, Sovereign Lord, as a group, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Stop right there. I, I want you to see this prayer begins being very God-centered. Not man-centered, but very God-centered. Okay? We're going to see, it's really going to be five things, but the first one is dominion. It's dominion, it's authority, it's, it's, uh, excuse me, sovereignty. And they talk about the sovereignty of God. And what they're doing is they're declaring that, God, you are sovereign over the world. You are the creator of the universe. The word actually is is, uh, despotus. It means a despot where you're sovereign ruling authority. It's not negative like our English word is in the Greek, but they're saying you are the sovereign Lord. You are the one who has the right and to rule over creation because you're the creator of the universe. And I'll tell you, that will get you in trouble even that alone today. No, God created the world. People look at you like you're crazy. Like we believe in a personal God who created a personal, you know, beings who created the universe, who spoke it into being. And they're declaring that, that he has absolute dominion and authority over his creation. He is sovereign. And, 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 and what, what this is saying, which put it in its context, is I'm persecuted, I've been threatened, things are really getting bad, and what I'm declaring right now is even in the midst of that, at that moment, on that day, in that situation, you're sovereign. 
You have full control. The priests and the scribes, the people who just threatened me, who, who just you know, harassed me, who just locked me up, who took me out of the temple and put me in jail overnight, is not sovereign. You are God. Think about that. Think about that when you're suffering or you're in persecution. They're affirming that no outside thing or no outside people, no outside situation is out of God's control. And they found comfort in that. Does that comfort you? Many of you know the accident that took place a couple days ago. A friend of mine I work with. God's still in control. I don't, don't mean, I, does not mean I understand everything. God's still in control. And they're declaring, God, you're in control. Even under persecution, even when I'm suffering, even when things aren't going really well, you're under control. They took comfort in that. Sounds like Jesus, blessed are those who revile you and persecute you and utter evil against you. Rejoice and be glad your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Unfortunately, there's, there's this Christianity that's been doled out in America that says, receive Christ and everything will be great. Everything will be fine. Everything will be prosperous for you. And they skip verses like 2 Timothy says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Many of you know you came to faith and persecution started. Your family, your friends, your husband, your wife, your kids, your mom, your dad, co-workers, people in your class, stand up for the name of Jesus. Here we see the disciples acknowledging that persecution was under the sovereign control of God. You know, when Peter wrote his letter, we studied Peter way back a couple of months or a year ago, whenever it was, and he wrote a letter to this suffering, persecuted church. And he said that their suffering and their persecution was, by, was the means by which God tested the genuineness of their faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, so that it may be found to the praise and the glory and the honor of the coming of Christ. When Job lost everything, He tore his robe, he shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I come from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was able to look beyond the secondary causes and with the eyes of faith see everything from the hand of the Lord. And that was the springboard of just worship, of just falling at his face and worshipping the sovereign Lord. We ought to find great comfort. Brothers and sisters, find great comfort knowing that evil and persecution and suffering and sin is not the finality God is. I'm not saying that persecution doesn't hurt. I'm not saying the name call. I'm not saying the the, the reviling we get as Christians doesn't hurt. But God is sovereign over the persecuted, not the persecutors. And, 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 And we see that with act. We see them... It opening up their supplication with saying, you're sovereign, Lord. Over this circumstance, you're still sovereign. They are not. And we see the dominion. And also, very interesting, and I don't want to go past this passage of Scripture. Not only the dominion, but we see the, the supplication in, the, in recognizing of the inspiration of Scripture. And I want to show you something. Look with me in your Bibles. Look at verse 25. Right, he's talking to God Almighty, right? Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. And look at verse 25. He says, who, that's God the sovereign one, through 
the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. I don't want, I don't want you to just gloss over that. I want to stop there for a second. Okay? What is being prayed is something that David, King David, wrote 800,000 years before that in Psalm 2. And, and, and the apostles are taking what is being said or what has been said in David's day and bringing application today, in that day. So he's saying this was written and this is what's going on. And we'll look at that in a minute. But what I want you to see here is that the sovereign God and creator of the universe was speaking through David in that day by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, a, that's an astonishing claim that, that, that's called inspiration. It's, it's this miraculous work, this, this, this fact uh, of that God communicated his word through the processes, through the methods by which he speaks through other people. And we get his word. It's called inspiration. And we see that right here. They're acknowledging that God Almighty spoke through King David who wrote Psalm 2. And now we have the very word of God. That's really important. Okay? Uh, Peter puts it this way. That men were, that, that we got those scriptures through men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a sailing term for sailing when, you, when you're in a ship or in a boat and you, got a, a, you put your sail up and the wind carries you along. He's saying as men were carried along as the wind, wherever the wind took the sailboat, God spoke and carried along these men of old who wrote this and got every single word was really of God. Was really of God. Just as the wind took the ship wherever it pleases, so to David and other authors of Scripture, God speaks and carries them along. It's a supernatural work of the Spirit. And that's why here at King's Chapel, we don't worship the Bible, worship the God of the Bible, but this is final authority. God spoke, and whatever God has revealed himself in Scripture, we stand on as authoritative. Amen? Because I could sit up here and tell you all kinds of things. If it's not from this book... It's stray, it's straw, and, and, and it will be burnt up. So you'll see how important it is as we, we look. This is, this is not, you know, estimation. This is not, you know, speculation. This is revelation. This is God revealing himself to us in his word. The way we get to know God, to love God, to treasure God, to see all that God has done through his word, through the recording of his word as he moved people along. And, and, and they, and, and excuse me, Peter and John see that. They know that this inspiration, and, and, they, and they want to apply what was spoken to their day, to what was going on to them. So David spoke it 800,000 years before, and now they say, Who through the mouth of David your servant spoke? Why did the angels, excuse me, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings and the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see what he's saying? David wrote this in Psalm 2 and now it's being fulfilled right in our eyes. The very word that God spoke is being realized in that city. It is what happened with Jesus. The raging nations are paralleled with the Gentiles. The peoples are the Israelites. The kings of the earth are is Herod, and the rulers are Pontius Pilate. Verse 27. For truly in this city, you wrote it, it happened. They were gathered together against your holy servants. Who? Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That's exactly what happened. They were just pointing out the obvious. It was no surprise. 
They found encouragement knowing that what has taken place, catch this, what was taking place in their midst, what had happened not only to them, but to Jesus, was under divine control. It was spoken about in Scripture. Okay? That's what they're finding comfort in. And that God has the power to overrule everyone, and they're, they're, they're counting on that. They're trusting in that. And what I want you to see that's really important in this prayer up to this point is that their prayer, listen, their prayer was more about their adjusting to God than God adjusting to their situation. The big difference. Their prayer was more about adjusting to God than God adjusting to them. Some people think that our relationship is all one-sided where we petition God and we, 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 we talk to God about our, about our lives and, 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 uh, and our hurts and our persecution and, and what's going on in our circumstances and it's this one-way relationship. Now, we should do those things, but if it's all one way, the relationship is more like your relationship with Google than with God. You know what I mean? You put your request in and you send it out and you figure you see what's coming. You know what I mean? But that's not the relationship that these brothers were having with God at this moment. It wasn't one side. It wasn't a grocery list, right? This is real relationship because true prayer, what we'll see is an answer to God's revelation. We just talked about the inspiration, how God revealed himself. True prayer forces us or should force us to deal with God as he is not as we wish he was. Eugene Peterson, in a book, Answering God, wrote this. Left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing, or to the part of God we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us. Prayer is not really talking to God. True prayer is answering God. If someone came to you and shared their life story with you, And when they got done, you just began and respond with your needs. Something would be wrong, right? God has poured out his heart and his word in the scripture. And our prayers, when we open our mouth, should be based on that. We should pray in response to God's revelation. That's what we see here. They're not just talking to God. They're answering God. They're quoting scripture. They're quoting scripture. They're seeing and resting in the character and the nature of God revealed in his word. His word says he is sovereign. His word says that it was given to us by inspiration that he spoke through men and every word we have is his. His word assures us that he has everything in control and all the things that happen are his glorious purposes even though we may not understand them. They take this glorious attribute and they pray it back to him because a relationship is two-sided. Some of us, I'm afraid, are only one-sided in our relationship. They talk to him and, and they, as they respond to God's revelation and they're strengthened by it. You know what that means? For you and for me, that means that you have to know your Bible. You've got to read the Scripture. You've got to see the nature and the character of God. You've got to see him for who he is and not who you think he is. You've got to see him as he reveals himself and speaks to us. And one of the ways in which they, not only his sovereignty or inspiration, but one of the ways also is through his predestination. Verse 28. 
Well, look at 27 again first. For truly in this city was gathered against his servant Jesus, your anointed one, Herod and Pontius Pilate, Gentiles of the people of Israel, what they did to him. They're, they're responding. We know that you had written this, and this is what was done to Jesus. They killed him. Verse 28, they did whatever your hand, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Now, the word predestined means to mark out beforehand. It emphasized that God has foreordained whatever comes to pass. Now, this summer, if you were here, you can go online and look at it. We talked about things, uh, one of the sermon series we did, and one of the uh, sermons within a sermon series was the sovereignty of God and the suffering of man. We talked about election and predestination. You know, all the fun summer things that we like to do, you know, to talk about, not stirring up the pot a little bit, but we did. We talked about that. It's online. You can look at it. And if you were here that summer, you know that there are two camps that we talked about. The Arminian camp, the, the comes from Jacob Arminian, and then the Reformed camp that comes from a, a brilliant Bible scholar and teacher named John Calvin. Now, depending on what camp you're on, you'll look at that verse and you'll say, all right, I, I, it was their fault. Herod and Pontius Pilate, all the, all the Gentiles and the Jews, and everybody handed Jesus over to be crucified. That was their free will choice. That's what they say. That's what they wanted to do. That's the choices that they made. And they, 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 you know, they made their choice and they killed Jesus and they're responsible. And I would say that is true. That's what it says. And then the reform guys, the Calvinists say, but God planned it. He predestined it. He foreordained it. And I'll say that is true. The Bible holds us responsible and yet God is still sovereign. The Bible says that when you sin and I sin, we're guilty. We're responsible. The Bible also says that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and sovereign, that he can work outside that, bend that, so that he gets glory and his good will and purposes are fulfilled. And you say, well, how does that happen? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. When Paul was uh, taken back in Romans, you could read about the depths and the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God and the riches of God. He says, who, who has the mind of the Lord or who, who has been his counselor? I'm not raising my hand. Me, pick me, pick me, I'll tell you. You know what I mean? I don't know. God is sovereign, God predestines, and God controls the universe. Man is responsible, man makes choices, man chooses, and yet God is still sovereign. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we see here. We see that the apostles believed in the sovereignty of God, controlling the universe, believed that Herod and all those people did that wicked thing, and God predestined it. I don't know what to tell you. If that's upsetting to you, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. I thought it was a great, uh, a great uh, quote. He said, the same decree, predestination of God, which ordains the moral law that prohibits and punishes sin also permits its occurrence. Prohibits and punishes sin also permits its occurrence. But it limits it and determines the precise channel to which it shall be confined and the precise end to which it shall be directed and overrules its consequences for good. You know how you know this to be true? The greatest, most wicked, most despicable thing in all the world was murdering the spotless Son of God who did nothing wrong to anyone, never, ever committed a sin. 
And yet God takes that most despicable sin, the most heinous, rebellious sin, and displays his greatest glory. I, I could have never, no man could have ever thought that up. That is the ultimate plan of God. That's what it means to be the sovereign one. People have a plan, but God has a greater, a bigger, and a better plan. And with God's sovereignty secured in their minds, Peter and John, with the sovereignty of God secured in their mind, God's wonderful provision in his word settled in their hearts, and God's glorious, redemptive, predetermined plan, no matter what evil may come, made sure in their souls, they make their final petition in verse 29. And now, they say, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Now, the prayer initially appeals to the justice of God, look upon their threats, but, but they don't pray that their opponents would be crushed They don't even seek to be spared from the opposition. It's not just what that prayer is about. It's what's not in that prayer, right? The real petition is, let me face opposition. Let me face persecution. Let me suffer faithfully and boldly. They didn't ask for protection. They asked for power. That's amazing. They did not ask for a hot tar to be flying from heaven like they did Sodom and Gomorrah. God did, but for power to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. Now, don't overlook the fact that they had a proverbial gun in their face. Don't, don't think that the apostles did not pray for this because, you know, they, 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 they were bold all along. They prayed for boldness because, I don't know about you, but if somebody had a gun in my head and said, don't you dare talk about Jesus again, I'm praying for boldness because right now, I'm about to crawl under a rock somewhere. You know what I mean? This is real people, real families. Some of them have children and wives. They know the threat. They pray for boldness. Verse 18, verse 21 makes it clear they were threatened. By chapter 12, we're going to see in Acts that the Roman authorities are cutting people's heads off. James, the Lord's half-brother, gets his head cut off. So things are going to get worse. They could probably sense that. And they're asking for boldness and courage, not for escape and not for a getaway. They want to be bold. John Wesley once wrote, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. I care not whether they are clergy or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Amen? Verse 30, while all this is going on, while the gospel is being declared and preached, the word, he says, he continues, that God would stretch out his hand to heal. Signs of wonders would be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, we talked about this in chapter 2, so I don't really want to get into it. This was, this was a message that was declared, and God showed up and did healings as, as a, a, a sign to, to verify and vindicate the message. Could it be done today? Yes, I believe it can. Are there, are there, there cracked people that are just nuts and, and just want to, to steal your money? Yes. But I don't want to deny the fact that when the gospel's preached, when Jesus is centered, when people are coming to faith in Jesus and he is held up to, to, to worship, that God can't show up in a miraculous way. I believe he can. I believe he can. Doesn't mean we should seek signs. We looked at that but we recognize that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1. So we want to have a balance there, okay? So 
The supplication, God, you're sovereign over the world. Your word was given to us by, by the power of your spirit. We see it happening before our very eyes, what David had written, that you had predestined even this sin. You bent it for your glory to display the glory of Christ and your love for all mankind. And now we petition you, O Lord, give us boldness. Let us declare with confidence and and assurance your good, good gospel to those around us. That's the petition and the prayer. So let's just spend a couple of minutes here looking at the demonstration. God shows up. God shows up in a powerful way. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Think about that. Shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God shows up. Three things are going on in that passage. One, the place was shook. They were, they were praying and the, the walls and the floors began to rattle. That's reminiscent of the Old Testament when God would show up. Right? He came down on Mount Sinai. He came down and shook the mountain. The people were a little shaken too back then, right? Because God was coming down. His glory, his holiness was coming down and his presence. And people know, listen, I'm a sinner, man. The holiness of God coming down. We're in trouble. Many places in the Old Testament, when the Bible, in the Bible, when God shows up, things shook. In Isaiah 6, if you remember, Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, and the Bible says that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. Shaking and crumbling and cracking of the earth is a sign that something greater, something of greatness was showing up. Something that was so great that this earth can't even contain it. It's shaking. It's rattling. It's, it's disintegrating. It's, it's coming apart. It's stressed out. It's falling apart. And what you see here in Acts is the shaking, but no one's falling apart. The house was shaking, but they were not. That's because on the cross, when Jesus died, there was an earthquake that day. God came down, and his wrath came down on the person of Jesus. Not on us, the deserved, but on Jesus, the undeserved. Jesus went through the storm of the wrath of God so that we don't have to. Matthew says this, verse 20, chapter 27. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The temple curtain ripping, signifying access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ and his body that was broken. And in our text, you see the place was shaken, but they were not. They became unshakable because of the cross. Number two, they were filled with the Spirit. Family, I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying it. There's only one baptism of the Spirit. There's, at the time of conversion, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, but there's a continuing throughout Acts, and we'll see in the New Testament, of a filling of the Holy Spirit, of a yielding of the Holy Spirit, of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. One conversion experience, one baptism, and then a continuing feeling, a filling throughout life. Here they're being filled, and, and what's happening? They're not speaking in tongues like they were in chapter 2. But here, they're, they're bold about Jesus. They're looking down that proverbial gun in the face, and they're saying, shoot. Do what you have to do. I cannot stop. I will not stop speaking about my Jesus. I'm just not going to stop. And there was a renewed awareness, a power, and the presence 
of God in their life. Three, they began to speak just what God said. Look what it says. They began to speak the word with boldness. I read a story this week about five boys. They were students that lived in Lyons, um, France. There were five students who came to faith in the gospel. And they were in Lyons, France. And what they did was the five students traveled to Switzerland. This is the 16th century, 1552, say, 51. They traveled to Switzerland. Switzerland was not under as much... uh, uh, crackdown on, on reformed theology, on this, this new gospel, uh, not new gospel, but this, this uh, opening of the gospel to so many people. And these five kids became uh, Christians. They began to absorb and soak in reformed theology about faith alone, through Christ alone. They went to Switzerland. They studied long. They wanted to be good missionaries for Jesus. They graduated and on the way from Switzerland to Lyons, France. They stopped in Geneva where John Calvin was teaching and they soaked in more teaching and they were on their way back to Lyons, France to live as good missionaries and they were stopped by a stranger and they became friends and they were sharing their faith, I'm sure, with him as well. When they got to Lyons, the man said, why don't you come to my house tomorrow and we could talk some more? And of course, the five students said, absolutely. They show up the next day only to be imprisoned and bound. The man was working with the Roman Catholic priest at the time. It was, they were, it was the Reformation. They were under a lot of persecution. And they bound them. And they declared them heresy, her, heretic, her, heres, uh, Yeah. <laughs> so they take them in lions. This is a true story. They send them to Paris where the king there declares them heretics. They send them back to lions. They're all being bound and chained. And from, from the, the, the autobiography of this story, um, they kept saying the same thing. We trust in our Savior. We've learned about him. We belong to him. He's my, he's my God. It's in Christ alone, my faithful Savior, in life and in death. Everywhere they went, every court they went, every king they saw, they said the same thing. Jesus alone, Christ alone, the gospel alone. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. William Hanna wrote a book on this, and it's called Wycliffe and the uh, Huguenots, and he writes of the incidents, and he writes this. He says, the day of their execution arrived. They were repeating and reciting passages of Scripture, singing psalms and chanting aloud the Apostles' Creed as they reached the pile of wood that would tie it around their bodies as they were secured to the stake. He continues, the voices rose amidst the flames, and the last words that were audible were, courage, my brother, Encouraged, courage, and then they were burned alive. Church, I, I, that was not their own strength. There is no way. That was because God had showed up and gave them power and boldness. It was his mighty hand. And let me, let me, let me point something out to you as well. Even in, in, in our story here in Acts 4, plus that story of the men from Lyons, it wasn't just the filling of the Holy Spirit. It was good theology. It was good doctrine. See, some people say, I just want to be filled with the Spirit. I don't want to read my Bible. I just want to be filled with the Spirit. And some people say, I just want to read my Bible. Don't talk to me about that Spirit stuff. They had both. They understood God was sovereign over the world. They understood that he was the creator of the world. They understood the inspiration of Scripture. They understood that he predestined everything. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they said, take my life if you need to, because I'm not going to stop. It was both, which means, again, if we want to pray 
like those five students, if we want to pray like Peter and John, and we want to be bold in the the face of persecution and expect God to show up, we've got to ask for the Holy Spirit's fullness, but we have to read our Bibles, know our God. John Calvin writes this to these five students. He says, your chains have become renowned and the noise of your imprisonment has been spread everywhere abroad. Thus it must be that despite Satan, your death will resound far more powerfully so that the name of our Lord may be magnified thereby. For let the enemies do their utmost, they shall never be able to bury out of sight that light which God has made to shine in you. In order that many may contemplate it from afar in death, they speak louder words of truth than in life. To God be the glory. God shows up. God shows up. They don't fall to pieces. They get courage because of what Jesus did. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak boldly. And then the outcome of that, we see the cooperation. And we'll get more into this next week. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one, said, no one said that they had anything that belonged to him was his own, but that everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Them all. When God is working, and the main thing is the main thing, God's people work together in cooperation. There is unity, okay? There is unity. Remember, unity is not something we strive for. We don't create it. We submit to it. We declare it because unity is a byproduct of Jesus. He's at the center. And when Jesus is at the center, we can have unity. Our text tells us they were of one mind, one soul, emotionally, volitionally together. Um, the, the, the heart is, is uh, the religious, you know, the place where, where uh, the wellspring of life, someone once said. And because of that, nobody had anything that they said was their own. They didn't hoard everything. They were willing to, to give their stuff away. Now, this is not communism, right? This is not dictatorship. This is community. This is family. And, and Nathan's going to get into this next week, how, how it, it was voluntary. Christians who, who know the gospel know that God could have left us in our wicked, rebellious state and sent us to hell justly. But because of his grace and because of his love and because of his generosity, he didn't. He sent Jesus, the greatest gift, the most gracious gift to die for us, to reconcile us. And when you know that, when you know that, when you truly know that, you will be generous as well. I have the last verse. Let me see if I have the last verse. No, I don't. Let's, um, let's look together at verse 33 to close, okay? And I really mean that. We're all going to close. I know I say it sometimes and I don't. Verse 33, and with great power, and I want you to catch this, this wraps it up, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So not just grace, because that caught my eye, I read that, not just grace, like grace is enough. This is great grace. Well, how how do we get great grace and this resurrection proclamation together? where, Where is the connection of those two? I'll tell you, because there was another earthquake. Yes, when Jesus died, the earthquake came. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus. Temple was, uh, the curtain was torn in two. But three days later, first Easter morning, there was another earthquake. 
Matthew says, was on the Sabbath, the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone on it. What's happening in that verse? What's happening is death was being shaken. Death was being cracked open. Death was being dissolved because of Jesus. C.S. Lewis calls it the deep magic. You know the story, you know the movie or the book, Lion and the Witch Robe? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Aslan's killed, the witch forces leave to prepare battle, and Aslan's dead body remains on that stone table. Susan and Lucy come out from their hiding spot crying, and they, they, they remove the muzzle from Aslan, and the, the mice come along and try to eat off the, cor- or the straps, but, but it, it doesn't work. And then as the, as the dawn day arises, it says in chapter 15 of that book, at that moment they heard from behind them a loud noise, a, a great cracking, a defeating noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down from end to end and there was no Aslan. You remember Susan and Lucy look around, they can't find him. They think it may be a ghost. And then Aslan shows up and he explains. He says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but... If she had looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known, now listen, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself, death itself would start working backwards. Family, the apostles knew, the five students knew that the resurrection of Jesus Christ had cracked open and conquered death. So that through faith alone, through Christ alone, through great grace alone, we can face persecution, we can face suffering, we can face death. Because in the gospel, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was shaken so that we can become unshakable. We can look at, 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 at persecution because we know that grace, great grace comes to us through Jesus, and we are secured in the Father's love. We can face the future. We can face persecution. We can face suffering knowing that he suffered for us. We can become confident. Job looked at his suffering, great suffering, and even persecution from his dumb friends, right? And what did he say? I could face this because I know my Redeemer lives. Do you? Let's pray. Father, we see this prayer just dripping with who you are. Lord, we pray that as a people we will be driven to your word, that we may hear you speak as we open your word, as we see your unveiling nature and character. Lord, as we, as we look to the scripture, as we, as we look to you through the scripture, help us to have hearts settled on the truth that we find so that, Father, when we pray, we can answer back to you and respond to who you truly are. And, Father, with that, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. That's our prayer. So that we would be bold and courageous and we would be people who are quick to show love, mercy, compassion, generosity. Because we know him, we know you, who holds the future. 
Death cannot stop us. And we will not hold on to the things of this world because we do not belong here. This is not our home. And Father, we pray that with boldness we may go out open-handed so that we can share the good news of Jesus, telling people to repent and turn to Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.